Good morning. I'm very grateful for this opportunity uh, given to me to speak to you from the Word of God today and the next two Sundays as well. And I really do want to say um, to the Advent Choir and to Gary how, how much I've been fed already. I love Isaiah. <laughs> a people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of darkness. A light has dawned. That's what we want to talk about this morning. It sets the stage so well. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We won't read the whole chapter. I actually want to turn in a moment to Revelation chapter 12. So you might put a finger over in Revelation as well. Read these two passages. One very close to the beginning. One very close to the end of God's word. From Genesis 3, I'd like us to read verses 8 to 15. We'll be spending most of our time in verse 15 this morning, but also tracing these thoughts as uh, they reappear and form the storyline of all of Scripture. So let's begin here, Genesis 3, verse 8. I would like to ask you to stand as we read, as we honor God's Word together. This is the Word of God. And they heard the sound, that would of course is Adam and Eve after they have fallen into sin. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So now, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And here again, we will see these two characters. The serpent, more, common, more often called a dragon in this passage, and the child, the offspring of the woman. Let's read this chapter together. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful to you for your word. You have not left us without light in darkness. You have given to us a sure revelation of your salvation in your Son. And we pray to you this morning you would open our eyes to see clearly the revelation of Christ. May we see his greatness and glory May we, I pray, Lord, that your people who are here this morning would be fed and strengthened and encouraged with the hope that comes from this teaching, this this truth of Christ's victory over Satan. Would you use your word to fix our eyes securely on Christ that we might please you? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The goal that Kevin and I have in mind for this year's series of Advent sermons is not essentially different from what we, as well as Brett and the elders, and hopefully every one of you, want to do all year long. And that is, we want to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. We want to preach Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. 
Not the Jesus of popular imagination, not the Jesus of cultural tradition, not an edited Jesus who is shaped according to our earthly preferences and desires, but the mighty Jesus of Scripture who turns our expectations upside down, one who does not cater to our every felt need, but who does meet and provide for our true need, our deepest need. And if we want to get the big picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do, here in Genesis is an excellent place to start. It's the beginning of God's revelation to us. It contains the first direct prophecy that we have about the work of Christ. It is a view of Christ given to God's people from a long way off. Okay, the details may not be very clear. There's a lot we're not told. But this is the way that God chooses to introduce for the first time the message, his message of salvation in Christ. And the outline of his saving work is presented in a way that is meant to give great strength and hope to the people of God throughout the ages. It is the promise of a coming deliverer. One who is called, depending on your translation, he is the seed, which is a very direct, a very literal translation, the seed or the offspring of the woman. And this is the one, we are told, who will defeat or undo or destroy the works of the devil. Well, as I see it, there are three elements for uh, elements to this promise I want us to consider this morning. The first one is this. The promise is framed in terms of a great conflict. The promise is framed in terms of a great conflict. And that would be true both in the context and in the actual words of the prophecy. Of course, the conflict originates with treachery and deceit. It's the uh, malevolent hatred of Satan at work. He's speaking through the serpent. Therefore, he's actually represented by the serpent. Satan successfully portrays himself as the one who is concerned for the welfare of Eve. Unlike God, of course, who wants to oppress them and withhold from them the fruit that's really good for them to make them wise. So they'll be like God. Satan uses this lie to mask his intense hatred for the creatures who bear the image of God. But the lie achieves its intended purpose. First in, Adam, uh, first in Eve, then in Adam. Adam is the one appointed by God to represent the human race. He's the one entrusted with the responsibility of exercising dominion over creation, and particularly within the garden, to tend it, to keep it, and to guard it from anything that is unholy or unclean, that would threaten to invade God's sanctuary and defile it and usurp God's rule. But with all this authority and all this responsibility... Adam goes over to the other side. He rebels against God. He betrays every one of his descendants. And so when we read the account of the fall in the Garden of Eden, you're reading about your defeat. This is the defeat of the entire human race. And that defeat is nothing like the loss of a game by the home team. Okay, It's not even like the defeat of your favorite candidate in an important election. I think the closest analogy that we might have in modern times would be to think of Jews living in Czechoslovakia in 1938, right? 
It's the time when Neville Chamberlain and other European leaders make this infamous agreement, infamous agreement with Adolf Hitler. They announced that we have achieved peace in our time. But of course, that so-called peace led to the horrors of warfare and conquest and the brutality and genocide of World War II. Because the leaders of the free world made nice with a villain like Hitler. In some ways, that illustrates what Adam did for us by following the suggestion of the serpent. Well, God responds to what has happened by pronouncing a curse upon the serpent. The serpent will be cursed more than all the livestock and the beasts of the field. He will be made to crawl on his belly and eat dust, which are expressions of defeat and disgrace for a conquered foe. We see that expression again in Psalm 72.9, Isaiah 49.23. The enemies of God's people are made to lick dust. And then in stages, I think, we start to get closer and closer to the heart of the promise that God is making. First, God said he is going to put enmity, a state of hostility between the serpent and the woman. And it's important for us not to pass over this. In the judgment that God pronounces on the serpent, God is showing his heart of love and grace to the woman. He could have said, think about what he could have said. Okay, you've chosen to team up with the serpent. Now you're allies with one another, so it's you against me. That would be what we would expect God to say. But instead, in effect, he is siding with the woman against the serpent. It's not that he ignores what she did, but he is showing her commitment, excuse me, his commitment to her redemption and eternal salvation. And then as we get even closer to the heart of the promise, we see this hostility between the woman and the serpent is not only true for them, it's true for their descendants as well. It's between your offspring, speaking to the snake, the serpent, your offspring, and her offspring. So this state of enmity is going to extend throughout human history. And we will see see that battle taking shape and playing itself out throughout all of Scripture. So, for example, in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we have the account of Cain and Abel. And that is used in 1 John 3 as a prototype for the conflict that exists down to our present day. Let me read that quickly. 1 John 3, 12. We should not be like Cain, he tells us, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. And then he draws a conclusion, an application from that. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's the way it's always been. It was that way from the beginning, and it's that way now. So so scripture gives us a history of this great conflict all the way from Genesis to Revelation. If we continue through the book of Genesis... Uh, We will see it continues the history of God's people, but as it does so, it also makes special mention of certain individuals or nations who rank as notable enemies of the people of God. And so after God destroys the world with a flood, Ham, in chapter 9, will show a mocking disrespect to his father Noah, and he and some of his descendants will be cursed. Their genealogy is continued in chapter 10, where special attention is paid to men like Nimrod, 
who is the founder of several significant cities that stand in opposition to God and his people. And Canaan is mentioned, who is the father of a number of tribes in the land of Canaan that will end up as bitter enemies of the people of Israel. We also read, as we continue through Genesis, um, the very sordid account of the beginning of two nations uh, who become notorious enemies of Israel. That would be the Moabites and the Ammonites. You can read their origins in, in Genesis 19. And as we move through the rest of the Old Testament, we will see that some of the people whose genealogies were noted in Genesis become powerful empires that threaten the very existence and survival of the people of God. Empires like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. And I do think it's interesting to note, uh, while we're keeping in mind this serpent language from Genesis 3, at least one of these empires is associated in the Old Testament with the image of a serpent. It's not the same Hebrew word, but in uh, Isaiah 51, uh, verse 9, and Ezekiel 29, 3, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is called a dragon. Rahab the dragon. And in those contexts, it, it, it seems to be referring to some sort of reptilian sea monster. The, the old language would be a sea serpent. And of course, we read Revelation 12, where Satan himself is called both a dragon and a serpent. So the point of this language in Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and other places is that the rulers of this world, by their opposition to God and his people, they show that they are characterized by their, their similarity to and their affinity with Satan, the great serpent. And this conflict between God's enemies and God's chosen people that's recorded both in the historical books and the prophets, it also shows up in the worship of Israel. So this is a constant theme in the book of Psalms as well. Beginning with Psalm 1, there's this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 2, we have the nations raging against God, the rulers of the earth taking counsel against the Lord and and His anointed. And that's going to continue through the entire book of Psalms. David is constantly persecuted by his enemies. We read Asaph questioning and asking why the wicked prosper. And the ultimate response of God to these enemies kind of, I would say, jars our modern sensitivities, doesn't it? I'll read Psalm 68, 1 and 2. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. The Psalms actually celebrate God's judgment upon his enemies, sometimes with very graphic language. Like this, Psalm 3, 7. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 5 actually uses language that says God hates the wicked. He hates evildoers. So this is not a minor detail. This is not incidental. This is a major theme throughout the entire Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings are full of examples and they form this storyline of bitter, continual conflict. And it's interesting to note, even when we move into the New Testament, we read about the birth of Christ In the Magnificat, that song of worship by Mary, worshiping God for the favor shown to her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, this idea of 
Conflict with God's enemies actually forms an important element of her praise as well. As she considers the significance of what is going to take place in this miraculous, through this miraculous birth, the meaning of what's going to happen as a result, she expresses it this way. He, that is God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice this is a very typical way in Scripture of describing who are God's enemies and who are the ones who are favored with the grace of God's salvation. The enemies of God are the proud, the mighty, the rich. Those who belong to God are the meek, the humble, the hungry, the poor. Because in this present evil age, generally it's the people of God who seem to be getting the short end of the stick. That's the message of Psalm 44, which is quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. To all outward appearances, the people of God seem to be losing the battle. The judgment of God upon His enemies is promised. But for the most part, we don't see it happening yet. And that's why the second part of the promise about the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 is so important. If the promise is framed in terms of a great conflict, we also need to see that the promise assures us of Christ's ultimate triumph. The promise assures us of Christ's ultimate triumph. Notice a couple of things toward the end of verse 15. First, the offspring or seed, which depending on the context can be either singular or plural, is clearly referred to here as singular. It's the pronoun he uses. He, not they, he will will bruise your head. That is the head of the serpent. The ESV translates this here as bruise. Sometimes this word is translated crush. The idea seems to be landing a successful blow. Okay? But it is one particular descendant of the woman who will strike this fatal blow against the serpent's head. The human race has fallen under the power of a tyrant. But the rule of that tyrant will not be allowed to continue. He will come to his defeat and doom at the hand of one who achieves victory by his own power and strength and and superior wisdom and skill. And this is the hope that sustains the people of God throughout the centuries of this age-long conflict. When times are darkest and survival is difficult and extinction seems like a very real possibility, think through the history, the stories you know about the people of God when the people are enslaved and oppressed under the hand of Pharaoh, when word goes out that all the male children are to be put to death, when they reach the promised land but quickly fall into idolatry and God sends foreign armies to invade and conquer his own nation, his own people, when God's people are plundered by their own wicked kings and false prophets and greedy priests, when a ruler like Jezebel puts the true prophets of God to death, and the remnant are forced to go into hiding, 
when God judges his people and they're sent into captivity, first to Assyria and then to Babylon, when wicked men like Haman devise a plan to eliminate Jews from the Persian Empire, from all the known world, well, where is the ray of light that gives hope to this persecuted group of people, this persecuted minority called the remnant? It's right here. It's this promise that says Satan and his minions are not going to win. And of course that promise comes into focus much more fully, much more clearly when it's actually realized in the New Testament. So speaking on this side of the cross and resurrection, in 1 John 3.8, John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We have seen the victory of God accomplished in Christ. And yet, we living in the New Testament age, it's like we're living in a, in a period when it's like two ages overlap. The kingdom of God has come. That's the new age. And yet the present evil age continues for a time until final judgment. But that judgment is sure. The promise is repeated for new covenant believers in Christ. Romans 16.20 The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The defeat of Satan by Christ is something that you will soon experience. This dragon serpent who looks so powerful and so scary, he knows that his time is short. He is soon going to be crushed under your feet. Brothers and sisters, this is the way we need to look at this conflict. This is the way we need to learn to think. It's what we fill our minds with gives us hope throughout the day. I know some of the struggles that many of you face. Partly because some of you have told me about those struggles. Partly because I face similar struggles myself. Some of you wrestle with anxiety and fear. With guilt and depression. Some of you have difficult relationships with a child or a spouse. Some of you are overwhelmed. And you have doubts whether you are going to find the strength to continue to live a faithful Christian life. To continue to hold to Christ. You need to take courage from this particular promise in God's word. We start to ask these questions sometimes. Will Christians in a remote village in Mali be able to remain true to the faith when they lose their teacher because of political unrest? Right? Will a brand new believer in Turkey be able to resist the pressures of a family and society that want him to deny Christ and return to Islam? Will we here in the materialistic, relativistic West be able to hold true to Christ instead of giving in to self-indulgence and unbelief? What are we asking when we ask these kinds of questions? Aren't we asking if Jesus will be true to his word? Aren't we asking if God is powerful enough to keep his promise? People of God, be encouraged. God's power has not diminished since he led his people through the Red Sea or fed them in the wilderness, or brought them back from exile. His power has not diminished since he raised Jesus from the dead, or sent his spirit upon the church at Pentecost. 
And he has not changed his mind or broken his word or altered his purpose since you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God's word has been proven true. Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman, has accomplished what Adam did not. He met the serpent and defeated it. And because of his victory, you who are united with him are assured of your final victory as well. So even though scripture never minimizes the seriousness of the struggle that we're in, because it's true, we face an enemy who is is crafty and powerful and he opposes us with, with unimaginable hatred. It also, that is, Scripture also gives us every reason to be confident as we engage in that struggle. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in the one whom God has given us as our warrior king who has defeated our great enemy, the serpent. Well, there's one last thing that's extremely important for us to see in verse 15. Genesis 3 not only gives us the assurance of ultimate victory in Christ... It also tells us, in language we would have to say is quite obscure or cryptic, but it clues us in, it gives us a hint, a powerful hint, how that victory is going to be accomplished. And here is where the wisdom and the expectations of men are completely confounded. Some have found it odd that the promise of, about the woman's seed here in verse 15, that it ends the way it does with the statement that the serpent will bruise his heel. They find it sort of anticlimactic or perhaps even suggestive that the victory won by the woman's seed is is perhaps not so decisive after all. We would have to say they completely missed the point. The blow or the injury to the woman's, to the heel of the woman's seed does not lessen his victory. It reflects the way he is going to achieve his victory. In other words, this promise, this is our third point, this promise points to the cross as the means of Christ's triumph. This promise points to the cross as the means of Christ's triumph. Satan will gather his forces against the Lord's anointed. The rulers of the earth will conspire against the Messiah. And all they will be able to muster is a blow to his heel. I hope I'm not sounding disrespectful as I say this. It's almost as if God is saying to the serpent, come on, Satan, show me what you got. Okay? What are you going to do? Kill my chosen one? That's part of the plan. What Satan desired and looked upon as his greatest success, the death of the seed of the woman turned out to be his worst nightmare and his greatest defeat. It was the injury that Christ would take upon himself on the cross that would make peace between God and man. It's how God can tell Eve, who remember, she's gone over to the side of the serpent, but he can tell her the hostility is no longer between her and God, it's between her and the serpent. It's because the woman's seed will take upon himself the woman's sin. And and in so doing, he will satisfy the debt that is owed to God's justice in a way that accomplishes his purpose of grace for the people that he loves. 
And this picture of the substitutionary death of Christ is going to reappear over and over again throughout the pages of the Old Testament, often in ways that that are fairly mysterious and obscure. They may seem at times to conceal at the time, to conceal as much as they reveal. But one of the most, I would say, it has to be one of the most remarkable and striking illustrations of Christ's death that we see in all the Old Testament is found in Numbers 21. A story that's full of serpents. Right? The people of Israel are bitterly complaining against God. They're showing their unbelief. And God sends swarms of fiery, we think that would be, that obviously would be poisonous serpents into their camp to judge them for their sin. So the people come to Moses, they confess their sin, they cry out for help, and God instructs Moses to make a replica of these serpents out of bronze and hang it on a pole for the people to, for everyone to look at. And if they do so, they'll be healed of the bite of these poisonous snakes. And of course, Jesus draws the connection between that episode number in the wilderness and his own work on the cross in John chapter 3. It's the only place in Scripture, as far as I know, where Christ in his saving work is represented or illustrated by something as vile as a serpent. But we need to understand why that is. It's all about our sin. Because human sin is much more than a personal weakness that we need to learn to overcome. Sin is presented in Scripture as the product and evidence of the, identi- the true identity of the human race in its natural condition as the seed of the serpent. I want to say that again. Human sin is much more than personal weakness that we need to learn to overcome. It's presented in Scripture as the product and evidence of the true identity of the human race in its natural condition. We are born into this world as the seed of the serpent. It's why Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. Of course, they're dumbfounded by that. They're not children of Satan. They're children of Abraham. They're very proud of that. Look at our law keeping. It it proves it. It's because they're thinking in very fleshly, human terms of physical ancestry. But if we understand the biblical teaching on what it means to be part of the true family of God, we will recognize we all come into this world not as members of God's family, but as offspring of the serpent. So when Jesus is hung on the cross in fulfillment of that picture that is drawn for us back in Numbers 21, it's because he was taking our place. God was making him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it would take to form the family of God and bring victory to their kingdom. Out of the mass of fallen humanity, which is in league with the devil, God creates a people for himself who are called, in Revelation 12, which we read, they're called the rest of the woman's offspring. These are the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
They are in Christ, who is the male child, the offspring of the woman, born in verse 5, still Revelation 12. And they share, these people share in both in Christ's sufferings and his ultimate triumph. They share in Christ's victory because, according to verse 11, they conquer the dragon or the serpent by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They achieve their victory in the most foolish way imaginable. By giving up their lives. Because that's the way Christ accomplished his victory. So they're not trusting in their own heroic efforts, the virtue of their courage, the strength of their own will. They know they have been bought by Christ. That's what takes away their fear. Because that's what removes the sting of death. We heard that back in First Corinthians, the end of 1 Corinthians 15 a few weeks ago. It is through the death of Christ that he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivers those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we find the courage to stand strong against the attacks of of the enemy because our leader has disarmed the forces of Satan on the cross and has guaranteed that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he has purchased with his own blood. Some of you, I know, have not been tasting the fruits of this victory over the last week, perhaps for many weeks. Satan has been bluffing you with his pretended power with the result that in your mind the value of the cross has been diminished. You have lost sight of the power of the cross and the beauty of the gospel. And it keeps you from living in the freedom and joy that rightfully belong to the children of God. So God gives his children a place to flee, a place to find rest, a source of encouragement and hope for those who are weary. Look around you. Look at your brothers and sisters who are also bought by the blood of Christ. They're weak like you are. But the shed blood and broken body of Christ has made them one and made you one together with them. And we are meant to encourage one another with this reality. It's why he has given us this supper. We receive strength as we feed upon the body and blood of Christ, as he is revealed in his word, as it's spoken by his people, and as it's proclaimed in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Some of you are facing big questions about your future Some of you are wondering how you are going to make it through this holiday season, much less the rest of your life. Some of you are wrestling with doubts about your own salvation. So you're asking, well, all these promises in the Word and in the Lord's Supper, they sound wonderful, but how do I know they really do anything for me? And for all of you, for all of you, the answer is not ultimately found by examining and agonizing over the quality of your faith. 
The answer is found by looking to the supreme value of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. We read the passage earlier in the service. Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Also 1 Peter 3, He Himself bore our sins and His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. When we look to Christ and we see the power and glory of His cross, why would we not want to choose to lay down our lives for Him and for our brothers? Be encouraged. God will give you the strength to do all that He calls you to do as you learn to treasure the unsearchable riches of Christ and rejoice in the victory He has accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. I pray to you, Father, that you would drive these words deep into our heart when you're, where your people are, are weak and tired and discouraged. Would you give new hope and fresh strength? Would you accomplish your will among us that we would encourage one another with these words as we see the day approaching Christ is coming, the one who has already achieved his decisive victory on the cross. And we are taught to hope for the final victory when Satan is crushed under our feet. Would you hasten that day and would you make us faithful until that day as you've promised? We pray and claim it in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.